0: Touch with technology with TechStuff from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey there, everyone, and welcome to TechStuff. I'm Jonathan
0: Strickland. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And
1: we are going to continue answering Daniel via Facebook's question about hydrogen cars. Are they a good idea? Question mark. Uh, I think I just paraphrased it, but we we want to continue our discussion. If you were listen to our last episode, we talked all about the basic science behind hydrogen and as well as the early uh, exploration of hydrogen by philosophers and proto scientists and some uh, early chemists.
0: Right, because although it is the most abundant element in the universe, we don't find it uh, flying free. Very often. It's right. usually bonded up with stuff. So yep. there was a long process of everyone trying to figure out um exactly what it does and how to get it free and, uh, and put it to work. It,
1: yeah. What do you do with it then? Like, can it do anything useful or does it just set your hair on fire? Um I'm sure there were a lot of interesting laboratory incidents. Is that what happened to your hair? Let's not go into my Lex Luthor like past because then my, my <laughs> nemesis will learn too many of my weaknesses.
0: But- so, uh, so we left off around the 1800s, 1820s specifically, yeah. and we were coming up on 1839 is, is our next date on our timeline, wherein Sir William Grove invented what was essentially the first fuel cell. Uh, although he didn't call it that, it was called a gas voltaic battery. Yep. Based on what he knew about electrolysis, uh, which is the process where you apply electricity to water and separate it into its constituent elements, yep. being hydrogen and oxygen, he hypothesized that you could go the opposite way, that you could combine hydrogen, and oxygen gases to create an electric current, plus water.
1: Yep. That's which is exactly the very basis of fuel cells. And uh we'll talk a lot more about fuel cells as well. And then we get to the eighteen sixties and eighteen seventies, and that's when a certain NA Otto O T T O, uh he he's the guy who created the first four stroke combustion cycle, we actually call it the Otto cycle, he used synthetic gas for fuel. Now it's believed it's not fully documented, but believed that this gas was at least fifty percent hydrogen, probably more than that. Now, he reportedly also experimented with gasoline, but he dismissed it because he felt it was too dangerous to work with. This is coming from the guy who's using hydrogen.
0: Oh, uh, gasoline is scary.
1: Well, to be fair, they had not yet invented the carburetor. And the carburetor Uh, is what makes gasoline really a useful fuel for engines. I'll talk a little bit about that in a second. And it's really
0: the only thing holding back Michael Bay.
1: (laughs) Yes, exactly. If you listen to our last episode. You'll realize that Michael Bay being allowed to make cars is a terrible, terrible mistake that we cannot allow to happen. Also movies. You shouldn't be allowed to do those either. So.
0: (laughs) Neither, preferably. yeah. Yeah.
1: The four stroke combustion cycle is what most cars today are based on. So if you listened to our last episode, you heard me talk about the vacuum based uh engine where it creates it creates this expanding gas and as the gas cools and is released it creates a vacuum which pulls, pulls a the piston. A
0: piston that allows you to do work yeah yeah
1: it's it, not that practical but this one was very practical and this one involves pushing rather than pulling so the, for the whole thing you have a piston that is uh inside a chamber right you have a combustion chamber the piston can be all the way in the chamber, in which case it's closed off, or it could be all the way uh to the very other end of the chamber where it's all open. Okay. So you got an open space there. The other end of that piston is attached to a crank that can rotate. So when the crank is in the upward position, the piston's pushed all the way in. When the crank is in the downward position, the piston's pulled all the way out. And as it rotates, the piston can move in and out. So here's how this four-stroke combustion cycle works. You have the four different uh, phases. You have the intake. Now this stage, the piston, which is attached to that crank, is at the top of the cylinder. An intake valve opens, and this inserts a mixture of fuel and air into the cylinder. That crank turns, and the piston moves down, so you start getting this chamber filled with this mixture of air and fuel. Next, you have the compression stage. This is where the valve shuts off, so it can't, it's not bringing in any gas. It can't let any gas out. Mm-hmm. But the crank continues to turn, pushing the piston up.
0: That... And that compresses the mixture of fuel and air.
1: Exactly. So now you've got this very compact gas, this mix of fuel and air together. This, by the way, is the same for hydrogen-based combustion engines as well as gasoline-based. Same, same principle. So you've got this compressed mixture of air and gas. Then you have the combustion phase. This is where you get a spark. And that ignites that fuel and air mixture, which then rapidly expands. It essentially explodes. Okay, so you've got this explosion, which then pushes against the piston. That drives it downward, turning the crank. Then you have an exhaust phase, where an exhaust valve opens up, and all that exhausted air and fuel mixture gets vented out uh, while the piston starts to, to move back up. And then you start all over. Starts again. the
0: process over. Mm-hmm. So
1: once you get this going, it just keeps moving that crank around. And that's where you get the power to do stuff like move your wheels. So, uh, you know, engines have various different numbers of cylinders. You probably heard things like V8. That's that's the configuration of cylinders and the number of cylinders there are. Technically, uh, the more cylinders you have, the more power you're generating up to about 12 cylinders. At that point, you kind of start. Getting into a wash, you have a diminishing, uh, the law of diminishing returns, that kind of Mm -hmm, thing. mm -hmm. But this is the basis. And this is what made uh, internal combustion engines useful. Before that, you had external combustion engines, which, you know, first you would think that makes it sound like there's Mm -hmm. going to be all these explosions everywhere. But no, we're talking things like steam engines, stuff like that. Right. Where you actually had open flame boiling up steam so that you could generate this this same sort of power. Because, you know, the steam would push pistons, too. We talked all about that. In that it's steam piston pushing. Yep. Yeah, it's pretty much that's the way of the world.
0: Really. Uh, spe- speaking of steam, our friend Jules Verne. Wow.
1: 1874. Yeah, Jules Verne. So the the famed writer, the uh, one of the earliest in I don't know if you call it science fiction at that era, but it's certainly the, the the precursor to modern science fiction and what a lot of uh, stuff like steampunk is based upon. Mm-hmm. So Jules Verne wrote in The Mysterious Island uh, a prediction. Now, granted, this is a prediction within the context of a work of fiction. I, I say that because as a Shakespearean, I get really uh, irritated at people who uh, attribute a quote to Shakespeare when really it's one of Shakespeare's characters. But anyway, uh, so what he said in The Mysterious Island was that one day water itself would be widely used as fuel by breaking it down into hydrogen and oxygen. So it was a very, you know, futuristic kind of, 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 uh, vision he had, but mm-hmm. also a realistic one. It wasn't one outside the realm of possibility.
0: Oh yeah, sure. And it was, it was almost 30 years after, uh, Sir William Grove had, had made those, those hypotheses and then proved them about, uh, the opposition of electrolysis. So. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So. It
0: It's it cool was that, an interesting science thing that he picked up on.
1: And it's now seeping into the public consciousness because mm-hmm. now you've got it popularized by fiction as well as in the, the scientific literature. Uh In the 1870s and 1880s, you had several engineers working independently and they all came up with this idea for the carburetor. The reason why I have it worded this way is because if you ask people who invented the carburetor, you get into a lot of flame wars. Not literally the figurative kind of flame war.
0: Well, that's good. Yeah, I'm. I'm glad.
1: I would hope they don't battle it out with flamethrowers or I, something.
0: I actually kind of hope that. Does
1: that make me a bad person? I'm not going to comment one way or the other for fear of you turning a flamethrower on me. So yeah, this, uh, this is where, you know, depending upon whom you ask, you get a lot of different answers about who actually invented the carburetor. But the, the carburetor's purpose is to mix together gasoline with air to run an engine safely and efficiently. Now this invention made gasoline powered uh, internal combustion engines possible. It made it made them practical. So because of this, attention starts to shift away from hydrogen and toward gasoline because gasoline was easier to come by. Uh, you could uh, use it as a fuel now with this way instead of trying to just use pure gasoline. So uh, that's kind of why the hydrogen based car, I would say I would argue this is the big reason why the hydrogen based car didn't become the car. Like the, it didn't become the, the way we used right. vehicles mm-hmm. uh, and why gasoline ended up taking over. So 1889, we have Ludwig Mond and Karl Langer who actually coined the term fuel cell and their version used cold gas and air as the fuel. So we've talked a couple times, mentioned fuel cells like twice already in this podcast. At uh, least.
0: Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about how they work.
1: Yeah. So basic idea is that you've got two compartments, two chambers. And into one, this is this is for a hydrogen based fuel cell, which is what most of the fuel cells we talk about are. Mm-hmm. You put in one chamber, hydrogen, pure hydrogen. Uh, you put in the other chamber, pure oxygen between the two. You, ideally. Yeah. Yeah. Th- yes. Ideally, you could meddle with this. But then the byproducts you get afterward are more than what a pure hydrogen based fuel cell would do. Right. Uh, so then you put between the two a semi-permeable membrane that's coated with a catalyst. And a catalyst is essentially something that makes other stuff happen or makes it happen more easily. Now, the hydrogen uh, cannot pass through this semi-permeable membrane unaltered. The only way it's going to be allowed to get into the party with all of its oxygen buddies is to shed a pesky electron. And if you remember from our last podcast, what's a hydrogen atom? It's a proton, an electron. So that's it. So you want to get hydrogen ions. They have to ditch their electron buddies, and then they get on across the the semi-permeable membrane. They're fine. They can go join their oxygen buddies. All those electrons start to build up. They don't like each other, okay? They're all negatively charged. They're negative Nancys. They don't want to be there. They want to get out of that and head over to the other side of the party where at least there's some tolerable elements and ions hanging out, and not all these just electron jerks. So if you create a pathway... From the hydrogen side to the oxygen side, then they're going to take it because now they've got a way to get away from all these other jerks.
0: Uh, and if you force them to do a little bit of work along the way.
1: Yeah. Then uh, they're like, you know, I don't like doing this work, but I'm totally going to do it. If but it means fine. I, I want to get into that party. Uh, so if this sounds like. And, uh, you know, what happens when you put a battery in a circuit? That's essentially what we're talking about here. We're talking about creating a circuit, a pathway for electrons to follow, to go from an area of negative concentration to an area where there are positive holes, that's what we usually call them, for the electrons to fill. So we create this, this pathway. The electrons from the hydrogen side will go through it, do work, enter in on the oxygen side where the hydrogen ions already are, start to recombine with these things, which then forms water. So the output you get from your typical hydrogen oxygen fuel cell, assuming you're using pure hydrogen and pure oxygen, is electricity, water and heat. That's it. Fantastic technology. There are some there's some drawbacks. One of the big ones is that the materials tend to be really expensive. Right. The catalysts tend to be things like platinum, which don't know if you've priced it recently.
0: Uh, it's It's pricey.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's a little on the deer side. Now, we're talking about nanoparticles of platinum. So a little goes a long way, but still, it's really expensive. Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, it's expensive to separate hydrogen out from anything that it is connected to.
1: Right. It, you could say, well, why don't you just separate it out from water? Well, you're making water, too. You're actually, you'd be spending more energy trying to get the hydrogen out that way. Now, if you were to able to harness some other form of electricity to do the work for you, like let's say you had a, a solar panel farm. And that solar panel farm was generating electricity solely for the purpose to separate out uh, hydrogen from oxygen and water. And then you harvested the hydrogen and used that in your fuel cells. That's a possible solution. It would be, you know, a complicated infrastructure, but it's workable. And in fact, that's one of the things Toyota is looking at. Ah, um, hmm. They're also looking at harnessing wind power to do the same sort of thing. So finding a renewable energy source so that you can produce this hydrogen. Because otherwise you're just spending more than what you're making. And then again, yeah, we're at that yeah. losing proposition. It is,
0: it is one of the, one of the several problems with fuel cells. But, uh, but we'll get a little bit more into that later on.
1: Yeah. So now we've got, uh, all of that, all the fuel cell stuff out of the way. We've got the combustion engine out of the way. We got a lot of more stuff to get out of the way. But before we get that out of the way, there's something else we need to do, Lauren. And that's take a quick moment to thank our sponsor. All right. We're back. Uh, What year is it now?
0: It is 1898. OK, we're going to talk about
1: a Scot now, a Scottish chemist named James Dewar, who used regenerative cooling and a vacuum flask to liquefy hydrogen at the Royal Institution of Great Britain in London. Now, that next year, he even managed to go a step further and reduce the temperature enough so that he could solidify Hydrogen. Now, you might wonder, how cold are we talking about here?
0: Uh, that happens at a temperature of negative 399.82 degrees Fahrenheit or negative 239.9 degrees Celsius. And I
1: think even our friends to the Great White North could agree that that's pretty chilly.
0: I was out at like, at like 45 Fahrenheit. Yeah, so I, I'm
1: that... like, yeah, you know, I gotta cover my tomatoes when it gets down to 60, so. <laughs> We're 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 kind of joking. But
0: uh but but so more about this vacuum flask. This thing is the coolest thing.
1: I mean, I don't didn't mean to make a pun, but it's a I never believe you when you say that. I, I really as I was saying it, I was judging myself, so if that makes you feel any better. <laughs> it's a double-walled flask. So you think of it as two flasks, one slightly smaller one set inside the slightly larger one. And that space between the larger one and the smaller one is completely evacuated of all material. So it's it's a vacuum, right? You've got a vacuum between those two sides. Now what this does is it allows you to insulate whatever material is on the inside of that flask from the outside environment, it does not conduct heat very well at all.
0: Uh, therefore you can conduct experiments at, at particular temperatures.
1: Yeah, you can have low temperature experiments where you just keep reducing the temperature and you don't have to worry about the heat from the outside environment creeping in. Yeah, because mm-hmm. then, then you would never get anything cold enough to be able to do this stuff like liquefying hydrogen. I mean, the, you gotta get it really cold and any sort of environmental heat is going to immediately move from an area of high concentration to an area of low concentration. That's kind of it's what it does. Sort of what thermodynamics do, you know? So, uh, the other thing is that it also is really good at, uh, at keeping hot stuff hot. So, you know, like a, like a thermos, you know, it's, it's because again, it's not allowing the heat from the inside of the flask to leak out into the outside environment. Gradually it will still cool down. Or the stuff inside will gradually still get warm mm-hmm. because it's not a perfect system. At the neck of this flask, that's where the weak point is. Because at some point, those two, the inner and outer flask, have to join together. You, right. can't, you can't just magically suspend it. <laughs> so there are some weak points in this. It's not a perfect system, but it does work really, really well. Now let's go to one of my favorite parts of the podcast because this is where we get to talk about some incredible music. Cause in 1900. <laughs> oh no. That's when Count Ferdinand von Led Zeppelin launched the first hydrogen-filled rigid airship d- called d- a Ferdinand.
0: Just, just, just von Zeppelin. It oh. wasn't von Led Zeppelin. Is, that, sorry.
1: My musical past has betrayed me once again. Well, no, no, but of course we don't call them the Ferdinands. We call them Zeppelins. Yes. Uh, but and they were not made out of Lead. I guess maybe some of the material might have been lead. It could have been
0: low lead concentrations. Lead-ish zeppelins? Uh Maybe spandex or hairspray. <laughs>
1: spandex. Yeah. Okay, that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, but anyway, this this was the a hydrogen filled rigid airship. These are those dirigibles that you've seen in the past and uh, were majestic. Uh, vehicles, but uh, we'll get into why we don't really see those anymore in just a couple of years.
0: Uh, certainly, although I, I believe that hydrogen was being used, uh, I, I think he was German, and I think Germany was using hydrogen at the time because the United States was holding a great amount of the helium mm. in the world at the time, and hydrogen was kind of considered the next best thing.
1: Right, because you know both hydrogen and helium have this lifting property, being being lighter than air. Mm-hmm, sure, so-, so, so
0: these Zeppelins might have been using uh, something slightly less combustible like helium if they had had yeah. the opportunity to
1: helium by the way significantly less combustible as in not but <laughs> but yes hydrogen uh, yeah i mean you, you use whatever you have available and that's exactly what they did 1935 we have henry garrett who is uh oh, was rather an american inventor who created an automobile that quote-unquote ran on water so this is where a lot not not all of them obviously but a lot of conspiracy theories about uh uh, big car companies or big oil companies pushing down all these inventions that ran, quote, unquote, ran on water. A lot of them come from this kind of thing. Uh-huh. There are some there's some truth to vehicles that used water as a component for fuel, but they all had their own big drawbacks. So Garrett's was one that used electrolysis, like we had said. Mm-hmm. So it's using electricity to separate water out into hydrogen and oxygen. Um And then the car was really using hydrogen as a fuel, which is not the most efficient ride. You're already having to spend so much energy just to create the fuel that then continues to move the car. And he had to refill it a lot. So mm-hmm. not necessarily the best approach. Now, this is before we really had useful ways of storing lots of pressurized hydrogen, which would allow us to have kind of a consistent fueling source.
0: Uh Sure. But I mean, I, I can I can see where the conspiracy or or. um. Fringe theorists, as I hear they prefer to be called by many angry people on the Internet. <laughs> right. uh, the
1: ones I keep making it mad. <laughs> uh, sorry.
0: Uh, you know, I, I I can see I can see where perhaps um gasoline powered car companies would not have at that particular time wanted to donate funding to that kind of research.
1: Right. Right. Well, and and, you know, they're definitely there's a huge investment in the gasoline automobile industry. I mean, from multiple players, not just. They, not just not the just car. Party. Yeah. Right. Tons. Right. So. Uh, but yeah, then we have a truly terrible disaster in
0: 1937. Uh, right. On May 6th of that year, the Hindenburg Zeppelin disaster occurred. And that has has put for the intervening time between then and now this idea into the public's mind that hydrogen is an extremely dangerous substance. Right.
1: that That to use hydrogen is to court death.
0: Yes, although it should be noted that hydrogen was not the instigator of that disaster. Mm. Okay, so, so the blimp was coated in aluminum powder to reflect sunlight. Aluminum powder these days is a critical component of rocket fuel. Under that coat, the cotton fabric was waterproofed with a flammable acetate. Whoops. There was a lot of static electricity in the air from a storm that day, so when the crew dropped the mooring ropes, it electrically grounded the blimp and set off sparks that ignited this highly flammable material.
1: Which then, of course, came into contact with this hydrogen that's inside of it.
0: Uh-huh, and the whole thing went up. Proponents of hydrogen fuel, though, actually use the Hindenburg as a as a point to hydrogen safety because uh, the the really lightweight hydrogen ascended up out of the blimp so fast that the flames went upward, not outward or downward. So it saved the lives of everyone who actually remained on board.
1: Right. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting that something we look at as being an example of this stuff is going to be too dangerous for us to use actually is a, an example of no, you're, you're looking at this the wrong way. You're not, you don't have the full picture.
0: Uh, right, right. It's, I mean, sure, it's, it's dangerous, yes. but everything is dangerous. And what's more dangerous is coating your blimp in rocket fuel. Yeah. Uh,
1: okay. All right. I got the n- <laughs> note, Lauren? I'm not going to use any more <laughs> rocket fuel on my blimp. And that same year as the Hindenburg, disaster, there was an experimental gaseous hydrogen-fueled jet engine test. And that's the first working jet engine huh. using hydrogen. So uh, then we move on to 1938. That's when Igor Sikorsky, who was a Russian-American aviator, proposed using liquid hydrogen as a fuel for aviation. Uh, so, you know, we already still had people saying that hydrogen had its place. Uh, by 1941, we have the first mass application of hydrogen internal combustion engines uh that's when a russian lieutenant whose name i'm not even going to attempt to pronounce ordered the conversion of several ford model GAZ-AA cars the the A uh um, the model AA, uh into hydrogen internal combustion engines converted from gasoline to hydrogen as part of the war effort during world war 2
0: a boris Shilashich, i well, think
1: oh nice i i was not going to try because my Russian is worse than my Swiss, which is worse than my French. Which is I, I, I have German.
0: <laughs> I haven't. I haven't looked that up. But uh. But I'm. That's that's my stab. I, well,
1: well done, because I. You're braver than I am. In 1943, we have Ohio State University testing liquid hydrogen as rocket fuel, and in the 1950s and 60s, we see more work with these hydrogen fuel cells. The this whole idea that had been proposed decades earlier. And mostly we see them in industrial applications like powering forklifts or other heavy machinery. The first commercial use of a hydrogen fuel cell is in Project Gemini.
0: Gemini. Yeah. Gemini.
1: I, hey, I'm just saying it the way the old guys I, say it.
0: I know. Yeah. That was, that was in 1965. And, yep. uh, that particular fuel cell was developed by General Electric.
1: Yep. There's your conspiracy theories for you. Uh, <laughs> 1981. We're skipping way ahead because generally speaking, you know, we still had advances in technology on both the combustion side and on the fuel cell side. But uh 1981, we had the Space Shuttle main engine test, which used liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen as the propellants. Um, in the 1990s?
0: Uh, had... Yeah, in, in some cities, they started rolling out buses that were powered by hydrogen fuel cells.
1: Yeah, pretty cool stuff. 2003, we have uh, another big moment in the United States.
0: Uh, yeah, that was when the Hydrogen Fuel Initiative was announced here. Um, it was a dedication of $1.2 billion in research grants and other governmental support to projects with the, uh, lofty but very worthy goal of, of making fuel cell vehicles practical and cost effective by 2020. I mean, like, like from harvesting hydrogen to the infrastructure that you'd need to get it to cars to, The actual cars. Yeah, this
1: is, this is incredibly ambitious. Not that other companies haven't taken up that mantle, but you know, we'll have a little bit of a discussion at the very end about why that's so ambitious. I think that's probably the best place to have it. But Mm -hmm. let's see. Then we have moving on into the late 2000s.
0: Several car companies began developing fuel cell concepts, um, although most never made it to anything like the common market. Uh, the, The only one that I've heard about even being semi available is the Honda FCX Clarity. Um, which for certain select Southern California residents is available for a three year $600 per month lease. Hmm. It's like a severe waiting list kind of, kind of situation. Which, but.
1: which might change dramatically next year because mm-hmm. 2015 is when Toyota plans to bring a fuel cell vehicle to market. And there are other fuel cell vehicles that are out there. Most of them are being used in commercial or industrial uses. Uh, again, not, not really talking about, uh, Uh, you know, the vehicles for the average consumer, but Toyota's plans say that this is going to be a really serious effort to make fuel cell vehicles a real alternative to gasoline and electric vehicles, uh, in a specific market in the U.S. We're talking about California yet again. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's really kind of the test market that Toyota is looking at, and they're looking at building out hydrogen fueling stations.
0: All right, because you have to. Yeah,
1: that's and that's where this is where we're coming up to that discussion where. Not only is hydrogen a a potentially dangerous substance, not only do you have to take into consideration the right way to pressurize it and store it so that people can use it safely, uh, not only is it difficult to get the hydrogen just all on its own, it's also expensive to build out an infrastructure that you're going from the ground up. There's nothing there really that you can already take advantage of. You have to start building in things like building in new pumps and and fuel stations that are hydrogen ones. There are a few of those that are around. Ah, uh, sure, sure. But, you know, most of those are for things like municipal use. It's not necessarily meant for again for the average person. Mm-hmm. It's not like, hey, I'm going to go down and fill up this pressurized canister <laughs> with hydrogen.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, you know, you you have to create an entire industry worth of of safety regulations and yep. and standardizations.
1: Yeah, yeah. If you don't have those, then it's not going to work. So this is uh, it's a it's a grandiose plan in many ways, but it's one I think that is actually achievable. I got a chance to talk to a lot of folks at Toyota when I went to CES. Oh,
0: yeah, that's right.
1: And so I got a chance to to take a look at the the fuel cell vehicle. Really, what I looked at was their test vehicle that actually had a fuel cell in it. And then I got to look at the what is the shell, essentially the what, what it's going to look like when it comes to market. But as I understand it, it did not actually have. Uh, the full fuel cell setup inside it yet. But it it's a very interesting approach. It is, again, uh, a subset of electric vehicles. It runs on electricity. It's generating electricity, uh, which powers the vehicle. It has an electric motor. There's no engine. It's driven by an electric motor. It's got a battery on board as well. Um, it's not like it's just a combustion vehicle. It's not a combustion vehicle at all. It's more like an electric vehicle than a combustion vehicle, except for the fact that you have to fuel rather than recharge.
0: Mm-hmm. So, uh, so so would you say uh, over we, we asked on Facebook if anyone had any questions about this? And Don asked, will all fuel cell cars be hybrids? So in a way, so technically, yeah, te-
1: technically, yes, because a fuel cell is, like I said, kind of an electric vehicle. So if you think of it that way, it is a hybrid. It's not going to be a hybrid as a fuel cell and combustion engine. That doesn't make any sense. For one thing you would have so much of your vehicle taken up by engines and motors and and fuel cells and batteries that there wouldn't be any room left for anybody else. So uh, that's not the kind of hybrid you're going to see. But technically, if you think about it, a fuel cell vehicle is already a hybrid vehicle. And, you know, Daniel on Facebook had asked, is this really a a viable alternative to say electric vehicles? And that's a highly contested area of debate right now. But I would say they each have their own advantages and disadvantages. The big advantage of an electric vehicle is that you can, if you're just driving around, you know, going around town and then coming back home at the end of every day, you can recharge that at home and you aren't having to worry about refueling ever. Right? Right. Uh, with a hydrogen fuel cell car, it's like a gasoline car. Eventually you're going to have to refuel on the flip side of that. If you're going on long trips, like you're not just driving around town, but you want to take like a cross-country road trip, uh, a la National Lampoon's family vacation.
0: (laughs) Because that really encouraged everyone to get on a road trip immediately. Yeah,
1: Wally World's only open for so long, Lauren. So if you want to go to Wally World and you have to drive through all the states to do it.
0: I do want to go to Wally World.
1: Who doesn't? So the problem is that with an electric vehicle, Whenever you need to recharge and you're not at a convenient stopping point, like you're not ready to stop for the day, that's going to take you like a half hour or longer, depending upon how you're doing this. Unless you're buying into Tesla's model where you can occasionally have your battery get your swapped supercharge
0: out or, or swapped out. Yeah. Even
1: with a supercharger, oh, it's right. like 15, 20 minutes yeah. for a half charge. So I know that doesn't sound like a long time, but think about how irritated you get every time you have to go and fill up your tank at a gas <laughs> station. Like, if that takes me longer than than five or six minutes, I think that the world is ending.
0: Yeah. Honestly, if I even just hit a slow pump, I'm just like, oh, no,
1: why did I pick this one?
0: Everything is terrible. I could have
1: gone anywhere else. And now the rest of my night is ruined. Yeah. So, yeah, hydrogen fuel uh, fueling stations will fuel at essentially the same speed as a gasoline fueling station. So when it comes to refueling, hydrogen uh, cars have have the advantage right now. Now, if we ever get into a crazy, super fast method of charging batteries, which people are working on, and it ends up being equivalent or even faster than fueling at a gas station, then that advantage disappears. The only other advantage you can say is that fuel cell vehicles like electric vehicles don't put out dangerous uh, emissions.
0: Uh, right. And that relates to the other question that we got in on Facebook from Ricardo. He he was he was asking is hydrogen really environmentally friendly because it, it also produces carbon dioxide?
1: If you're using, again, pure hydrogen and pure oxygen, you're not creating carbon dioxide. Uh, you are just creating water and electricity and heat. But if you're using something besides pure hydrogen or pure oxygen, you could be creating pollutants, like we had said at the beginning of the last podcast, part one. So it all depends on the implementation. Uh, and the same is true with with fuel cells or combustion engines. Mm-hmm. Uh, either way, whether it's one or the other, that's what your output's going to be based upon the input.
0: Uh sure, and it also depends on how you're creating, well not creating, how you're getting that hydrogen to begin with that's because true. some methods of of that hydrogen harvesting are cleaner than others. Right. If
1: you're using uh fossil fuels, for example, to power your hydrogen operation, then the question is, why don't you just use the fossil fuels to, power to the run car? the
0: car? yeah. Right.
1: Because if you're using it, why are you why are you have an extra step in there? Remove Although, the extra step.
0: You know, if it's a if it's a byproduct like methane gas out of natural gas yeah. uh, deposits, then then that can be a relatively clean way to be using that material.
1: Yeah, it's it's kind of like the co idea of putting uh, something that can use heat. As a way of, uh, uh, you know, like 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 the heat from say uh, a power generator where you're using you're generating lots and lots of steam that turn turbines, and those turbines then generate electricity. You might also have a way of of harnessing that heat to say heat a building, and then you are getting kind of a two for one thing out of that. It all depends on the strategy you implement to get the hydrogen, to ship the hydrogen, and to actually consume the hydrogen. So. Another thing we can look at too in the future is the possibility of using hydrogen to generate lots of energy through fusion, which is right. the same thing that our friend the sun does. And, He's uh. He's not my friend. Okay, that's true. I can't, I can't, <laughs> I can't hang out with the sun for very long before he gets angry at me, or at least my skin gets angry at me. But at any rate, yeah, the, the sun generates energy through that, that, that fusion process of, of, uh, hydrogen turning into helium we might be able to harness the same thing here on Earth, and perhaps we'll do a full podcast on that in the future. Uh, there have been lots of different attempts at it, and we've seen some promising results fairly recently that suggest we might be able to finally get to a point where we can actually generate more energy than it required for us to put into it to make it happen in the first place.
0: That's ridiculous. Yeah. Cause... And I'm being a little sarcastic, but no, that's actually ridiculous. I yeah. mean, that's the, that would be beautiful and yeah, impressive.
1: If, if it works out, then you could... I I would I hesitate to say solve the world's energy problems because I think it's much more complicated than just how much energy we have. Ah, uh, yeah. But it could make things really interesting. So anyway, if you want to hear more really interesting things, help us out, yo. Let, let us, us
0: know. Let us know what those are. Yeah, we let, don't know until you ask. Like this, like this, this Daniel. A, yeah. If we if we didn't mention at the top of this episode, we mentioned at the top of the last one, this was a reader question from Facebook, and we appreciate it very much.
1: Yeah, so if you want to ask us a question on Facebook, or maybe on Twitter, or perhaps even Tumblr, you can find us with the handle H S W at all three. Or perhaps you're a little more, you know, old-fashioned, or you have a lot to say, or maybe you don't want everybody else reading the question you have. You can send it to us via email. Our address is techstuff at discovery.com. And Lauren and I will talk to you again really soon.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.